Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is the podcast with the unpopular opinion that progressive centre-left politics has a lot to offer the modern world. New forms of media are changing the way we communicate, campaign and take in new information. But what is the bias in the news we consume when the place we get it from claims not to be a media publisher at all? And how do we hold those platforms accountable? How should politics adapt to a reality where you're not always able to tell what your opponents are campaigning on? I'm Progress Deputy Editor Connor Pope and I'll be discussing that with Progress Chair Alison McGovern, Digital Editor Sam Bright and Guardian columnist Raphael Baer. Now, many people predicted that the general election in 2010 would be the first social media election. Others said the same of 2015, but by 2017, it seemed a bit old hat to suggest that social media would play a big role. So obvious it was that it would be a major part of the campaign. So before we start discussing the new big tech divides, I want to ask you all what you think the first social media election was. Raf, can we we start with you? I have to admit, I do think that 2017 was different to anything that had come before because previously I felt that there'd been a dynamic element of Facebook, Twitter, everything going on online that had sort of amplified what had been going on elsewhere in the mainstream of the campaign. And the the conventional wisdom was always ultimately that that telly is the biggest thing. And and it pains me to say it as a newspaper journalist, but really newspapers were were sort of fiddling around the margins and TV was always the big thing that cut through. 2017 was the first time I think I became aware, particularly when the result came in, that clearly something had been happening somewhere that if your radar didn't show a lot of the Facebook dynamics in particular, yeah. you simply had missed part of the story. And that was unprecedented from my point of view. Alison, was it different? Did you campaign any differently than you had previously? Because well, in, in well, 2010 was noticeable for me because it was the first time... You stood as an MP. Indeed it was, <laughs> but it was the first... I've been involved in lots of elections before, but the yeah. 2010 general election was the first time I remember getting a proper bollocking off the campaign team because I'd been spending too much time messing about on Twitter and not enough calling the uh, voters. And... It was because that was the moment when I realized that Twitter and Facebook were an election thing. Because like, I'm old enough to remember Friends Reunited. <laughs> like, I'm old enough to remember when Facebook, like, you know, was, it was like a version of that. It was where you just like got on it so that you could like ask about and see what your school friends had been up to recently and who got a new job and stuff. And that was, 2010 was the moment for me where I think politics kind of went, hang on a minute, this Twitter malarkey 
is something. 2017 was definitely different, but how much of that was about the channels, the social media, and how much of that was about the fact that it was effectively a referendum on a referendum result? And it was a weird situation because it it was a prime minister saying, back me, I've got this great plan for our country, and then basically not turning up to the election, and therefore there was a reaction. I don't know. Can I just come in and say something that I should have said, which is also actually the one, the thing where it really cut through was the Scottish referendum, because going up to cover that, that was the point where just stopping people on the street and saying, you know, what are you, what are you going to do? How do you feel about these things? People referred back to their Facebook. Mm. And one of the things people even said was, I hate this whole thing. I want my Facebook back because their whole <laughs> lives have been colonized and people who they'd been friends with had fallen on different sides of the independence question. And that's when I actually, when it really registered to me that people's lived experience of campaigning, their primary contact with that was their Facebook. So Sam, we not really talked about the 2015 election here, but I, I remember it being such a big yeah. Part of the uh, analysis afterwards that the Tories were so much better on Facebook. What, what kind of do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, I was going to put the point forward actually for the 2015 election. Um, <laughs> maybe that's just because of Millie fandom and the fact that I've got Ed Miliband. Millie fandom. Ed <laughs> Those <laughs> are the days, my friend. Ed Miliband's face superimposed onto the body of James Bond and, you know, all sorts of nonsense. The you, mean, of- you mean he doesn't actually look like that? Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> you, couldn't, you couldn't tell from his podcast, could you? <laughs> <laughs> so I think that was the birth of the political meme that has since been taken on in 2017 and, and beyond. But I think the conventional wisdom was that in 2015, the Conservatives did very well in paid advertising mm. terms, and they really managed to cut through, particularly on Facebook, push big money into their advertising campaign. And in 2017, we saw the benefits of organic campaigning that Corbyn won based on the fact that his internal community pushed his message to a wide audience. And the Labour Party didn't have to spend a penny on that, which is a massive benefit for the party. And now the Conservatives are scrambling to recover. And it seems as though they're trying to aggressively impose organic communities where they don't exist. Mm. I'd say also, though, with all campaigning, and, and Ali might agree or not with this, that it can only ever give an amplification to an effective message if that's what you've got or if the message you've got is going to resonate. And that's the, ultimately the problem I think the Tories will find is unless the point you're trying to make through whatever channel is going to resonate with people, you know, whether it's literally going viral online or well, not literally, that would be sort of everyone getting horribly ill, but it's <laughs> metaphorically going viral online or it's cutting through because it's a, an old fashioned TV ad. You have to have the good message and then the, the medium yeah. is the second so, issue. So in 2017, I remember knocking on the door in Bevington and a lady saying to me about the granny tax, you know, when the Tories decided they'd charge older people loads of money for social care and her saying to me, oh, she's ruined it this time, hasn't she? They're not looking after the older people. Now, the, whether or not you agree with the idea that the Tories were or weren't looking after older people in what they have done and what they're proposing to do, it was believable that they wouldn't look after older people. So then you're kind of like online army, you know, memes on Facebook about granny taxes and all of that because it's a believable and b like there was a grain of truth in it like it was in their manifesto so I think I probably agree Raf that if you've got the body of a good message and a good campaign then you can take it over the line with the extra kind of heft of social media. Raf on your point about old-fashioned TV ads actually one thing that Momentum did really interestingly in last year's general election was do these kind of alt political broadcasts which went out on Facebook and I think they put a fair bit of money behind them but now I think questions are being asked about how much money they spent and where because perhaps we've not really got to grips with how you spend money online and, and what counts as a kind of local campaign and 
and that sort of thing. I think Momentum's supporters say that actually the legislation hasn't really caught up with new campaigning techniques. Do you think this is going to be something that could ever be replicated, their role in, in last year's election? I think everyone's saying that the legislation hasn't caught up with the techniques. I mean, the, the, the simple fact is the way you spend money to broadcast. No one, sorry, let me try that a different way. No one anticipated that you know, five or 10 years ago that a web page would be as direct for communicating a message as broadcast. That it is a kind of broadcasting in terms of, as you say, clips, and that it would have anything like the same reach. And yet simply it doesn't fall under the, the remit of the legislation that covers, for example, impartiality in broadcast news. Mm. So quite evidently, at some point, someone is going to have to say, you can't just spend as much as you want pumping out messages on Facebook, and certainly not in a way that where it's not entirely clear who the source of this is. What you don't want is a situation as you have in the States where you can have second, third tier organizations that are acting on behalf of a political proposition, but not explicitly connected to a political party and therefore going, as it were, flying under the radar of the spending limits. And we've yet to unpack exactly what happened in the European referendum Mm. with regard to this. And I don't think there's a whole amount of auditing capacity available either to the electoral commission or anyone else who's looking at it to understand what happened but uh, there is you know already evidence that certain untoward things did happen in terms of the channeling of money into that campaign it's probably going to be quite difficult to legislate for spending limits for russian warehouses full of twitter bots or something okay well and they're probably not that expensive to be honest so that that might be that's probably a different area of the law you need to look at can I ask finally, just before we uh, move on, does this new form of campaigning and online, is it going to invalidate old fashioned forms of campaigning? Will door no. knocking cease to exist? No, because in a local council election, you can win or lose by 20 votes. And the single best way to get someone to vote for you is to ask them in person. Everything I know about politics says that if you want people to vote for you, ask them yourself. In reality, in, a, in the national general election campaign, like the political party's message has to be carried through different channels. Like You can never just rely on on-the-ground campaigning. But the history of British political parties is actually much more that grassroots campaigns build up and then national politicians take on the mantle of those grassroots campaigns. That's certainly the history of the Labour Party and the other political parties. Therefore, that kind of face-to-face contact, I think, in the end, remains the best way. The fact is, Facebook and Twitter are having a a big effect on the kinds of conversations that we have with people, and we have to be really aware of it. But I think you'll never get past the best way being face-to-face. We should also add that, and particularly on the legislative point, that one of the things that Facebook can do that obviously conventional broadcast can't do is customize the message directly to an individual. So when you aggregate postcode, everything else you've liked, everything you've looked at, the sort of holidays you've searched for, that sort of thing, you can get a very specific message to target to an individual. And that's what the Tories did very well in 2015. And the lessons from that were learned, I think, by by Labour in, in 2017. But in terms of who controls that data, who has access to it, that that's not a question of money that's a question of, of privacy and, and and other areas of the law but in terms of whether an organization like facebook allows people to manipulate or control data that they might think is private to give you a political message without you necessarily knowing that you've been targeted in that way that's a pretty that's a quite an important thing to deal with the big question there is without you necessarily knowing that you've been targeted exactly. in that way i mean like anybody in a constituency can get in touch with the local political party and say you know why have you sent me this letter blah blah, blah. 
long. Yeah, when when Ali, when you're on their doorstep, they you you, yeah, you like, wear a rosette. You... They know that you're exactly. there for a reason. And like, and they can say to me like, "Why are you talking to me?" or whatever. And frankly, you know, bugger off. Not that that happens all the time, but <laughs> whereas Facebook, it's just totally anonymous. I mean, their their algorithms are like not within the basic understanding of most people and so they've been targeted in a way they don't understand but you did some of that during the last general election didn't you some kind of facebook videos and that sort of stuff yeah so we used very homemade video and promoted it through facebook in a relatively small way in a constituency of about sixty thousand people but i definitely feel like it had an impact hopefully in a transparent way and hopefully in a way that you know if people wanted to know what was being done they could tell from our all of the information that we have to publish about how you run elections, but you can't ignore it when it's a space that's there to be used. Like you can't, you can't just ignore it. And that's why I think probably somebody needs to sit down and say, okay, what does, what does, what does a changed world look like? And what does that require in terms of regulation? We need to take a short break now, but do stick with us because next we'll be talking about how to make the new tech giants accountable. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds at Mint Mobile. We like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hi, I'm June Sarpong, and if you like the Progressive Britain podcast, then we ask you to subscribe, rate, or review it on iTunes, because that's how we reach a larger audience. And that's what progressive politics is all about. David Cameron's government seemed to have a fairly open-door policy with big tech and wanted to be seen to be pro-innovation in the sector. Theresa May, on the other hand, appears much more hesitant about the tech industry. Jeremy Corbyn's supporters seem positive about the possibilities of new technology, such as John McDonald's socialism with an iPad speech. But when it comes to actually talking about the companies, only focus on the negatives. So where is the current relationship between Westminster politics and the tech sector, Raf? Well, let's start with Theresa May, because I think this is very interesting and important. The key to understanding Theresa May's politics is that she is a classic small C conservative and takes a very parochial view of the world. She's not one of these sort of world leaders who likes swanning around going to Davos, being on the international scene. Her, her, Her ideal conception of the perfect life is 
home counties. She grew up in in a vicarage, garden centre, slightly Daily Mail worldview, if I can sort of caricature it that way. I think she is culturally threatened by the social and cultural disruption represented by a media tech and will not have any instinctive understanding of it as a tool or the good that it can do. That, I think, informs her sense of of where it is politically salient. So she will worry, and with good reason, she will worry about ISIS recruitment videos on YouTube or the use of Facebook uh, or other, you know, or Twitter uh, as, as a tool for promoting or recruiting terrorists, for example. And so she will see it entirely through that lens of secure, small C conservative mm. security lens. So that's at the, at the prime ministerial level. The second tier where this becomes very important is at a very blunt level of tax, which is that these are huge companies and they, well, certainly Google and Facebook, make a lot of money. Twitter's now just about makes a profit. But Twitter's actually a minnow in this. We're really talking about Google, Facebook, Apple. And, and they are essentially companies based with very, very few tangible assets, and which means that they are, you know, they can have a headquarters in, in one place or another. But the reality is, uh, the, the, the products that they sell and the way they generate their revenue is hypermobile. And so it's just really easy for them to not pay tax in any one particular jurisdiction mm. and being good capitalists, they don't, um, if they can get away with it. So that ultimately then becomes a question of, you know, when there's still a deficit uh, and you want to recoup money, what can you do to persuade these people to basically give a British exchequer much more money? Sure. And also in that context, obviously, we need to mention Amazon, which is the third of those big three. But so from, from a conservative point of view, it's essentially a, a very old conservative fear of social corrosion, which is, you know, what are these crazy kids doing? You know, which frankly used to go on, with, you know, about people watching too much television. It used to go, I mean, when novels first appeared in the 19th century, people worried that they were corrupting the morals of young people. So this is an old one, but there's that that's very strong. And then the very new dimension to it is this question of, of tax. I'd, I'd add to that that a conservative value is obviously uh, embracing innovation in the free market. And um, tech companies... I think, represent that for Theresa May. I mean, recently it was announced that there was a, a billion pound investment in um, high tech projects, but I don't think they've quite got their head around how exactly this will work. I think they're rushing their innovation. I mean, the um, investment into self-driving cars, um, we're going to have self-driving cars by the time of 2021, when I don't think the moral arguments or even the technical arguments for self-driving cars have been sorted out yet and so I, I think that there needs to be a period of reflection and realization that rushed innovation sometimes creates bad innovation well i think also uh, it is very important you're right that the, this the anxiety on the part of this government of being seen to be anti-business is very strong for two reasons first of all Actually, the Brexit strategy that Theresa May alighted on, you know, the very hard one that she chose in, in the summer of 2016 to leave the single market and leave the customs union, although there were going to be some business people who said, yeah, that's fine, we can play with that. The reality is the overwhelming you know, voice in the, in the world of business thought that was bonkers mm. and didn't really understand it. You then had this, you know, another strand of sort of Mayism such as it exists, which it actually borrowed quite a lot from the sort of things Ed Miliband had been talking about, uh, worrying about, uh, talking about capping energy prices and energy bills, much more activist in terms of interfering in or sort of regulating markets that are seen to be dysfunctional. And so, you know, a lot of, as you say, the, the much more orthodox, classic pro-business Tories were feeding back to number 10 saying, what, what are you doing? This is the party of Margaret Thatcher. How, what, why are you sounding so anti-business on top of all the, all the Brexit stuff? So when you then you know, are dealing with 
big companies like Facebook, Google, Apple, the fear of compounding the sense that basically you, you know, the, the conservative party of all people has turned against business and capitalism means they are they are very wary of actually do, taking you know activist measures. We'll come on to Brexit a bit more later on, but actually how Brexit affects these big tech companies differently is quite interesting because obviously Amazon do have to have proper warehouses and you know real stuff that they move about and so like leaving the single market and the customs union for instance will affect them much more than say google who actually don't really kind of work in the same kind of parameters which i think is quite well google's a very interesting example because you know insofar as there is i mean the power of these huge companies is that they are just bigger than any national jurisdiction so essentially what what they fear is a, a sort of an, an organization, a pooling of national power and sovereignty mm. to exercise some kind of supranational, international political authority to play in the market on the scale of, for example, the European Union. EU competition authorities are, you know, are really the only political agency that has had any capacity, uh, first with Microsoft and then more recently with Google, but also with Apple and, and its taxes uh, with regard to investments in Ireland. That wasn't very popular in Ireland for various reasons. But the reality is it's only on that sort of aggregated political level of, of Europe that you get parity of power with something like a Google or an Apple. And that's a sort of a problem for Britain in the, in the sense that if you are serious about matching the potential political clout of a company like Google with your own, you need to be doing it at the European level, not the national level. Can I ask you quickly about Emmanuel Macron in France? Because he's very keen to be seen to be very pro the tech sector and very pro innovation and being forward looking in the future. Legislatively, what, what does that actually mean for him? Well, I think, I mean, as far as I understand, that part of that is a reaction more to a feeling that culturally France had sort of lagged behind in this whole area because for a long time in the sort of the legacy of the 80s and Mitterrand, there was a feeling that, that France had this very clunky, you know, old-fashioned old socialist uh, statecraft and that anyone who had a slightly more sort of what they called Anglo-Saxon liberal, what we might call sort of Thatcherite entrepreneurial dynamic <laughs> would basically leave. And a lot of them came to London. And so, you, that, I mean, that's why Macron, one of Macron's biggest constituencies is actually the expat French in London. Yeah. And so he comes over here and says, come back home, particularly, you know, in the context of Brexit, you know, and, 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 and sort of start, you know, there was never a sort of Valley Silicon, whatever it would be equivalent, I don't know if, that, if that's actual French or not. It sounded, uh, it sounded very yeah, convincing. Yeah, it sounded plausible. And so, I mean, I, I did, the short answer to the question is I actually have no idea what, <laughs> what En Marche are doing from a legislative point of view to encourage tech startups. But I do understand that culturally, bringing the entrepreneurial young class back to France when they had gone into exile. On the um, campaigning stuff that we were talking about earlier, one argument that Facebook uses that they're a, a publisher, not a platform. They, they, they kind of claim that they don't put out any any news whatsoever. And um, I'm just interested to hear both of your kind of take on that publisher v platform issue. I think that it's obviously a very tricky issue and it's breaking new ground. I think that most people would go to Facebook for their news alongside Twitter. And as a result, there's a very persuasive case that it is uh, a publisher. And I think that this has been really emphasized by the fact that publishers are not happy with Facebook. And these n recent newsfeed changes are, you know, even heightening that even further in the fact that uh, newsfeeds are, are pushing publishers further down the newsfeed. 
because it, effectively Facebook can change what you see yeah. in your newsfeed by yeah. changing the algorithms by which news stories end up in people's news feeds. Exactly. And isn't that a form of decision making that publishers make as to which content you see and which content you don't, which content is prioritized or not? I mean, absolutely. Obviously, I mean, I, I, my view on this is it's, you know, the old kind of Mandy Rice Davies thing applies. I mean, well, they would say that, wouldn't they? I mean, the, the reality is going right from the very beginning, you have this argument, you know, in the sort of the culture of Silicon Valley was always you know, we make the tools and, you know, you can make a shovel, but if someone chooses to hit someone else on the head with it, they use it as a weapon. But you can't be, you know, that's, that's not your fault as the manufacturer of the shovel, and which is a perfectly, you know, valid argument up to a point. But as, you know, the, the, the reality is when you are furnishing content and when you are curating content and essentially making it harder for other publishers to reach audiences because you have essentially monopolized the arena in which that content is being delivered, you... you have to take some kind of responsibility for for what appears on your platform and the simple reason why facebook and others don't want to get involved in that is because they don't obviously they don't want to have any kind of legal responsibility for these things and why Mm. would they i mean i remember having a conversation with not that long ago with actually quite senior google executive and i you know who will remain anonymous because it was that kind of conversation and i said but put this point exactly to him and said look don't you like Zoom out a bit. I understand this was in the context actually when they'd been fighting the European Commission on a on a regulatory matter. And I said, but away from the specific case, isn't it uh, the, the fact that people use a lot of you know the, whether Google or Facebook or other products as a quasi public space, and they see it and they they deal with it in those terms, and there's generations that have grown up with that as their concept, and therefore separate from the sort of legal framework within which you can operate don't you when this huge huge power huge space, have some kind of moral social responsibility to be aware to, to be guardians of this space in a responsible way and this google executive said to me i can completely understand the point that you're making and i think that's a very interesting philosophical point you've just raised but you will never ever hear me say that back to you in the words that you've just said <laughs> For precisely that reason, because legally they will never allow themselves to be to be in a space, or they will desperately avoid being in a space where they feel they are legally accountable for stuff that's published. And what you're seeing now in the states with the Mueller investigation, with Facebook being caught up mm. in, you know, in the question of collusion, is this coming to a head? They're realizing Facebook in particular are realizing they can't dodge this responsibility anymore. I feel I should just point out for listeners at this point that Alison has gone off to uh, ask a question in the chamber about Syria. She we're not just ignoring her. <laughs> during this conversation. But Raf, you, you picked up um, a little bit about how Theresa May feels about the big tech companies and essentially it's about security. And we see a lot of that. It feels like every weekend, certainly the Sundays, there's something about Google not doing enough about jihadism and extremism on, on YouTube. But, but also feeling that maybe Facebook aren't doing very much about combating fake news. And, and in the past few weeks, we've certainly seen um, conspiracy theories kind of come into the mainstream. Last week, we had uh, stuff about measles on the rise in Britain because parents won't get their children inoculated. And a couple of weeks before that, we obviously had that terrible stuff on the front of the Daily Telegraph about George Soros, which seemed to come straight from the populist right campaign against him in Hungary. And it feels like actually this stuff started 
on the periphery in social media and as it's kind of become more mainstream on social media it now just feeds into our national conversation normally Sam do you feel that these big tech companies should be doing a bit more on this Uh, I think so I I think that maybe it's slightly disingenuous to say that this has never happened in the the press I think that um, the tabloid press has been notorious for this for for decades (laughs) uh, fake news Um, but I do I I think that um, Facebook should be doing more I think it's it's current solution um, to the fake news problem is simplistic and, and frankly just bad in the fact that it's downgrading publishers. These are publishers that have invested millions of pounds in Facebook, remember, over many years to push content out. I worked for the BBC previously and there were BBC strands being created to push tens of millions of pounds into Facebook content and not have anything placed on the BBC news website to just put it through Facebook. And Facebook seems to be punishing those companies. And it seems really wrong to, on the one hand, say that tech companies are the solution to all of the world's problems. And then on the other, excuse them for being flummoxed by a technical change that they could make to filter out fake news. I think it's well within the capacity of these companies, perhaps not immediately, but in the short term, to be able to devise systems that can filter out fake news. I think Sam's absolutely right that we really don't want to get fall too far into the trap of saying well you know there was there was truth and there was a sort of epistemological clarity and then along came the internet and everything fell apart i mean that that clearly <laughs> isn't the case and i think we're in a particularly turbulent time as we just learn to navigate these things and i you know on better days i can actually be quite optimistic about this and mm. say look we are in this sort of we're sort of in the adolescence of an information revolution and everyone's experimenting with all sorts of things and there's a lot of risky things happening and we don't really know what's going on but actually it might settle down and the outcome of it will be actually a much better educated audience population of everyone where people have learned to learn now that we know that there is this thing called fake news the ultimate value of of good accurate reporting and news might genuinely emerge i think that that's a a perfectly feasible sort of end state um, for some of this but the another very important thing i would add to this is that I think it's a bit of a mistake to think the platforms should take responsibility for this stuff. And and the, the danger here is that, again, you have to remember that the sort of West Coast American culture of the internet from which the whole thing really was born, Facebook, Google, and the rest of it, was liberal and libertarian. And that's not a bad thing to have as the guiding ethos of a very, very powerful organization. Ultimately, it's better than fascist or authoritarian, right? But there's no guarantee that it'll stay that that way. So if you so just posit the example of if Google said, right, well, we're going to do something about fake news. That's we think that's a problem. So we're going to create a, a new product and it's going to be called Google Truth. And it will decide when you search, it will filter out the bad stuff. Well, who's writing that algorithm and how do we trust them to say what's true and what isn't? At the risk of sounding kind of nihilistic, you can just never trust these organizations with to be anything other than commercial organizations. And that's fine. They're very good at that and they want to make money and they do good products. But the question of trying to either educate people about what is true and what isn't and teaching people to navigate different information sources. That's a political and a civil society and a social job. You can't leave that to the companies themselves because it's not necessarily in their commercial interest to do it. That's funny. I, I, I spoke to someone from um, Google recently and they I was kind of trying to find out what they were doing on Brexit and, and the single market and how this would affect them. I was like, well, you know, obviously all of these things will affect us as a business in, in various different ways, but we can't really campaign on any of this because if people who support Brexit suddenly think that we're trying to stop it or, or water it down in any way, then 
at our heart, we're still a search engine <laughs> and people are not going to trust us to give them the right results. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, you don't want to fall in, into the trap you know, on the other side of thinking, well, you know, giant evil faceless corporation would probably you know harvest organs off babies if you gave them half the chance you know i mean business people can be highly ethical well motivated and the rest of it that that's a totally legitimate view to have Mm. of any company uh the, the point is that on this question of you know what is good value information that actually is you know either improving or informing a public discourse i just can't see a mechanism by which you could expect a facebook executive to reasonably arbitrate that mm. so what is the way of kind of holding them accountable and for, for what is on there or, or or indeed who should we hold accountable well there are laws i mean there are already laws right so you know you, it's it's not it's not okay to groom children as a pedophile uh, on facebook uh, or any other social media medium, but because it's obviously a vile, mm. wrong thing to do, it is also illegal already. Uh, likewise, terrorism—you know, um, recruiting, you know, and spreading racial hatred, uh, aggressive abuse—all these things. There are laws that you can enforce. Whether the laws are, are need updating to account for offences that are committed entirely in the digital realm—that. Uh, that might well be the case but that's not a huge conceptual leap from what we have already it's just sort of recognizing the point is recognizing where is the jurisdiction you know that these laws mm. apply to uh, you know which are ultimately similar to the tax question it's like where are you if you are operating and we accept that you're operating you know on this territory in territory that for which of which parliament and its laws has jurisdiction you obey those laws and we make sure that we have the capacity and the authority to enforce that well this comes back a bit to something again you talked about earlier but was the kind of thing that i wanted to finish on really is is, do we really believe that any of this can really be done at a national level surely it has to be a a supranational legislation that can actually do this because companies can move so easily uh, between jurisdictions and 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 how does brexit really affect our ability to deal with some of the questions we've raised yeah, I mean, I completely agree with what Raf said earlier that these companies operate across borders and we need to have strong um, systems um, internationally to be able to legislate. I think I would add that perhaps not all hope is lost. Um, Germany recently passed um, legislation that would make sure that massive fines um, could be levied out to Facebook for if content was on there that was uh, abusive. As a result, Facebook has invested quite a lot of money into putting new people in Germany monitoring posts. And that, that might not be the ultimate solution. That might not be something that, that solves the problem. But it shows that regulation can cause Facebook to, to change its practices on yeah. a national level. Mm. And if we if we work internationally, which obviously Brexit massively um, damages, um, then perhaps we can we can make some meaningful change. It's absolutely right. I mean, you just look at you know, why are Facebook and Twitter anxious about uh, the exposure of what their involvement might have been with, you know, in Russian interference in the US election. Because the FBI are breathing down their necks, right? Hard. (laughs) Why do they essentially stick two fingers up to the culture media and sport committee in this country when they say we'd like to have a look at what your involvement or you know how you might have been manipulated in the european referendum because it's the culture media and sport committee you know or the electoral commission and it's not special branch knocking at the door saying oi we'd like to see 
what happened here. I mean, the, the reality is these companies, like anyone, respond to effective enforcement of existing law. And for various reasons, uh, you know, which we discussed earlier, particularly with regard to the government not wanting to appear to somehow be anti-business or anti-commerce, there, there is a, a sort of confused squeamishness about just being rigorous and robust on this stuff. Uh, but ultimately, it makes me laugh when I you hear people say, you know, especially on the conservative side, we need, you know, organized political action to address questions of tax evasion and tax avoidance and the rest of it. And you think, well, yes, imagine if all the countries in one continent could somehow get together and organize themselves. <laughs> I don't know, maybe in some kind of a union uh, and have some kind of political coordination to Radical address that. It would be more effective. You know, it'll never catch on. But it, anyway. No, that's idealistic utopianism, Raf, <laughs> and uh, it's beneath you. But thank you for joining us today. We'll thank wrap you up that conversation me. there. Thank you. Every week, Connor asks a political pub quiz question, which is then answered on Friday's show. So last week, Theresa May said that not having attended university is no barrier to becoming prime minister, despite the fact that she has no cabinet ministers who are not university graduates. But in the last hundred years, how many pr British prime ministers have not had university degrees? Send your answers to office at progressonline.org.uk or at Connor Pope on Twitter and listen to Friday's show to find out if you've won a mug. We need to wrap up now, but we've been delighted to have uh, The Guardian's Raphael Burr joining us today. Do send in your questions and comments through Twitter, email, or best of all, as an iTunes review, and we'll respond to them on Friday's show with the best iTunes comment winning a prize. And don't forget to subscribe and rate. Thanks for listening. listening to the progressive britain podcast the music was when in the west by blue dot sessions licensed under creative commons and many thanks to the brilliant caroline crampton who produced this podcast Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.